Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Welcome back from the holidays. This week, we're going to kick off 2018 by looking at one of the biggest exhibitions of the year, painted in Mexico 1700 to 1790 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. The show is a glorious, fantastic, wonderful broad survey of many kinds of 18th century Mexican painting, including religious narratives, altarpieces, portraits, casta painting, and more. It's on view at LACMA through March 18th. My first guest is one of the show's four co-curators, LACMA's Ilona Katsu. She's been on the show before to talk about her area of expertise, new Spanish painting. Also, don't miss the exhibition catalog for this show, which was published by Delmonico Prestel. It's an absolute go-to document. Amazon offers it for just $60. On the second segment, I'll talk with Detroit Institute of Arts curator Kenneth Myers about Church, a painter's pilgrimage, his new show about Frederick Edwin Church. But first, Ilona Katsu, after the break. The critically acclaimed exhibition Louise Bourgeois, an Unfolding Portrait, is now in its final weeks at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Explore Louise Bourgeois' fascinating creative process and the prints and books and related sculptures, drawings, and paintings that she created over the course of her remarkable career. The New Yorker calls it revelatory. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing, with more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Ilona Katsu, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you. You know, I was thinking about how to kind of set the stage for such an ambitious, big idea show. And, and, and I think the way to do that is with this question. What has been, for many decades, the knock on 18th century Mexican painting vis-a-vis Mexican and New Spanish painting of the prior two centuries? It's such a complicated and long question, but it's traditionally the work of the 16th and the 17th century have received much more attention than the 18th century. And I think this has to do in part because works from the 16th century are more about the transition between the pre-Columbian and the colonial period. So there's that exchange of ideas and people that has for some reason taken up more with scholars, especially in the United States. And more scholars have also devoted time and resources to the 17th century, but the 18th century was this time frame that was sort of in between the 19th century and modern Mexican art and 17th century and the 16th century. And it was very, it was languishing in oblivion. And this is not to say that there haven't been prominent and very sophisticated and interesting scholars that have devoted their time to looking at aspects of the 18th century. But as a whole, it was a very neglected century. Why? Why? What, what? You know, not to not to use too simplistic a term, but why was 18th century Mexican painting less loved, if you will, than than the work of the previous couple centuries? I think that it has to do in part with the historiography. The the doyen of of Mexican colonial art is Manuel Tuzan, who worked in Mexico in the 1930s, published a book in the 1960s. And he very, I mean, his book is still very valuable and used to this day as a reference tool. He very much foregrounded the 17th century and he point blank called the 18th century the era of the decadence. In his opinion, it was overly sweet, almost too sweet for, for to be considered good taste. And this is obviously also coming out from the tradition of the criticism of the Rococo in European historiography that's getting applied to 18th century Mexican art too. So it's this whole history way of this, this whole historiographical approach that gets labeled onto Mexican art. And for some reason, 
it's persisted pretty much until fairly recently. It's, I would say that it's more in the last two decades that people have started to look at aspects of 18th century Mexican art more in more earnest. So I read you uh, write that in a catalog essay, although, as I recall, much of that was in one of those great little footnotes that points a finger much more directly than the text does <laughs> that we've all written. <laughs> It was. I, I I read that before I saw the show, and I reread it after I saw the show. And and what you just described does not describe the exhibition that's at LACMA. Were you consciously thinking of presenting a rejoinder to that idea? Yeah. Uh, yes. I was. Ever since I've started working on the 18th century, which was really when I started doing dissertation work in the late 90s and early 2000s. I just realized that the lack of information on Mexican artists from the 18th century was just dismal. And I also visited many churches and museums at that time, and everything I was seeing entirely contradicted what I was reading in the historiography. So having not been properly trained in this field, because back when I was a graduate student, there was really no uh, course devoted to this material, I was left in a way on my own to sort of try to sort of make sense of the gap that I was seeing between what I was reading and what, what I was seeing. When this idea came up for the exhibition here at LACMA, and I was incredibly fortunate to join forces with three really talented scholars from Mexico and Spain, I think we, in many ways, we came together because we could all see past that very reductive notion of what the 18th century was and we wanted to learn more. So even though we are all considered specialists in this material, we also were completely aware of our own gaps and the need, the, the, the tremendous need to travel and see and really try to come up with some way of systematizing this material. One of the things I really got out of seeing the show was I came away thinking that 18th century Mexican painters were significant innovators in umpteen ways, from the stories they chose to represent to how they represented those stories to to how they built compositions, to how they addressed pictorial depth, to to their use of text. Is this a period of painterly in innovation, or is that just my not knowing this place and time as as well as I hope to in the future? No, I think I think I agree with you. I think the uh, 18th century was the time where Many things from the past kind of gelled, they coalesced, and artists were increasingly aware of, of what was happening in Europe and also their own local traditions. So there's a borrowing, if you will, of uh, European traditions, and not only Spanish, for a long time in the historiography, Mexican or New Spanish art was thought to be very closely related to Spanish models, except especially from the South, from Seville. But one of the things we really wanted to pull out in this exhibition is that artists were also looking at materials that were coming from the French Academy, from Italy, from a whole bunch of different places. And they were also looking at their own tradition to important painters within Mexico itself. It's a time when they, especially the brothers Juan and Nicolás Rodríguez Juárez at the beginning of the 18th century who come from long, uh, long dynasty of very illustrious painters in the 18th, in the, from the 17th century, they really start to formulate their paintings in a different way to, as you said, to try to create different compositions, to introduce a softer pictorial style that is very notorious when you look at it in comparison to 17th century models, although we can't really talk of a clear break. There's truly more of a transition. And this is something that I find really interesting. They are trying to form an academy. In fact, they probably functioned within this uh, context of academic learning and grouped uh, a number of artists who were active at the same time and had their independent workshops. They tried to get the authorities to approve officially their academies. They failed. They throughout the century, the 18th century, where there there were several attempts to do this, and they failed constantly. But it speaks to this notion of really self-awareness, self-awareness of how they were inventing new compositions, new pictorial styles, and uh, wanting to be recognized for it as part of the sort of the larger royal bureaucracy. One way of detailing that 
different softness might be to talk about how Mexican painters portrayed Jesus. There, there are, across your show, not just in one or two paintings, painting after painting of, of Jesus that one, you know, that I've, I, you know, just totally unique representations. <laughs> Could you give us a couple examples of how Mexican painters portrayed Jesus and what sets those portrayals apart from the way anybody else was doing that anywhere else in the world? They, yes, there, there are quite a few examples, but I think one of the most popular examples, especially among the museum staff, is a painting signed by Miguel Cabrera, who was one of the most prominent painters of the mid-18th century. He came to prominence in 1750. He died in 1768. So really the bulk of art that we have by Miguel Cabrera dates from that period from 1750 to 1768. And one of the, uh, the, the most charming paintings that we have in the exhibition is titled The Divine Spouse, which shows this wonderful whimsical figure of Christ reclining in a bed of flowers with a group of lambs surrounding him and licking his wounds in his feet. And on the top of the painting, the uh, upper extreme, you have this group of uh, white-clad little souls ready to bestow him with a crown of flowers and hearts. So it's uh, one of this... uh, (laughs) really magical and very unusual ways of representing Christ. In fact, when we opened the crate, when the painting arrived in the museum, the staff was just eagerly waiting for that picture, which is endearingly titled, Among the Staff, Sexy Jesus. (laughs) Other people have called it Pin-Up Jesus, which is kind of more irreverent. But when people ask, uh, why, why was Christ represented that way? Where was it displayed? And the, the truth is that the painting was displayed within a conventional context. So it was the type of painting that has been documented as pertaining to convents with, uh, with nuns. So nuns who had clearly devout, devoted their life to the divine spouse, to, to Jesus. So this is one of the ways uh, in which you really get a very clear glimpse of how Mexican iconography can really twist things or take it to a completely different level and produce this strikingly original works that are a combination of, in many ways, anatomical correctness, attention to the academy, and this overly emphasis on decoration, on the, the ornamentation, the lushness of the flowers is really striking. The fact that all the symbols of the passions are hiding within the flowers makes it almost a work that you have to pay attention to because you want to get near and you want to start hunting the symbols of the passion. You start looking for all the symbols. And, and if, I could, if I could interrupt really quickly, they are hidden in the flowers in that they are portrayed as the same size as the flowers and, and, and the flowers' stalks and the leaves. So they're you know, little ladders about the size of, of a petal. Exactly. So it's uh, you really have to get close to find those, and then you just completely become obsessed with trying to see what else might be hiding in that lush background. So what is it that's going on or might be going on in around 1750 in Mexico that would lead to this kind of a representation? Why Why did this kind of a representation happen in Mexico and not anywhere else? Hopefully what you get out from seeing the show is that the incredible diversity and variety. So while we can talk about this type of painting, and it's certainly one of the paintings that most are most striking, there is, because they seem so original in the sense of uh, how the composition is made, there are also other types of works that are more, if you will, canonical in the sense that artists were also paying attention to, to the nude, One of the historiographical uh, issues in the field is that for a long time, scholars said that new Spanish painters of this period just didn't know how to do or draw the nude, that they were the, their proportions were all off, etc. And so the way that my co-curators and I try to respond to that problem is uh, if you walk through the show, you will see a whole wall with nudes. You see a St. Sebastian, St. Peter, St. Andrews, and uh, that was very a very deliberate choice from our part because we wanted to really showcase the fact that painters were indeed very sophisticated. They were grouping in academies. They did know what they were doing. They were attuned to 
to all sorts of different traditions, and they were using live models as well as part of their training. Are representations of Mary in 18th century Mexican painting as original and different as representations of Jesus? There are all sorts of different uh, versions of Mary, too. I think. Boy, the, are there. Well, yeah. It's, I mean, it's Mary's uh, an advocation. We, it's the show, for example, we have several works that depict the Virgin of Sorrows, the Dolorosa. So they, they, they follow more European schemas in terms of just keeping the decorum of the image. The notion of decorum was very important for new Spanish painters. One of the images of the Virgin Mary that is really remarkable that we have in the exhibition comes from the Casa Profesa in Mexico City. It's a very large picture that depicts, it's what we call a statue painting. So it's a depiction of a painting of a statue in its altar. And this work that we have from the Profesa, which we have attributed to Nicolás to Nicolas Enriquez, it was a very beloved painting that was owned by the oratorians in the 18th century, and they took over the Jesuit building when the Jesuits were expelled in 1768. And it shows this lavish virgin dressed in a crimson gown, completely bedecked with strings of pearls, with a dagger piercing her heart. And surrounding the image are all this kind of very playful cherubs that are holding the symbols of the passion. There are tears trickling down the face of the Virgin. So the sense of high drama that you see through this picture, and at the same time, the playfulness, the sort of the contrasting little cherubs that are just flying around with this very dramatic central figure, creates this kind of unique tension that makes the image even more powerful. But this is the kind of imagery that, it's very, it's very interesting because it's the way the composition is built is linked to images of the Virgin of Solitude in Madrid, for example. So clearly the artist and or his patron had such images in mind, but they completely changed them within this new context of new Spanish painting. Now the painting, we, we never thought we were gonna get that painting uh, lent to the exhibition. We almost took it off the checklist because it's a painting that has been requested previously for other shows and it's never left. So we, we, we are really, truly very lucky to have it here in Los Angeles. You mentioned that it's a, a statue painting. Uh, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but, but quickly before we get to a, a couple of other examples, what is the genre of statue painting and why does it happen in Mexico? Well, statue paintings comes from, it doesn't only happen in Mexico. There's a long tradition of statue paintings that comes from European traditions from Spain. They also occur in other parts of uh, South America. And it's essentially a venerated statue, oftentimes considered miraculous. They are portrayed in a painting because it's, it's the statues, there was this thought that some of the imminence of the divine quality of the statues could be transmitted to paintings, especially if they were touched to the original. That is, if there was a, con a connection to the original effigy. Many people would commission copies of the original effigies to, to be placed in their own private oratories or in other churches, domestic settings. So it's a tradition that was quite widespread. But it's how artists depict this works that makes it truly, truly unique. Another work, and I think we may have talked about this in your other show too, that's really wonderful, is the um, Christ of Ixmiquilpan. There's one in LACMA's collection, although that one isn't in the show, but yeah. There's one in, the, in LACMA's collection, which is small. And for this show, we were able to borrow a spectacular piece by the uh, artist Jose de Ibarra, which is in the collection of the ex-convento de Churubusco in Mexico City. This was a statue that was, according to legend, was given to this tiny community in the state of Hidalgo. And then it became the 16th century, and then it became so dilapidated, moth-eaten, just kind of in really poor state. And when the, there was a pastoral visit to the town, the archbishop ordered that it be destroyed and buried with the next person to die in the town. Nothing happened, six years went by, and then all of a sudden there's kind of all this moaning sounds, bizarre lights in the sky, 
And what, what apparently happened, according to legend, is that the statue detached itself from the cross and self-restored. And after that, it started making all these uh, miracles. So as a result of that, the statue was ordered back to Mexico City, and it was deposited in the Carmelite convent. It was a new convent where it became one of the most prominent images of Mexico City known for its many miracles. What I find really interesting, and we paired this painting next to an image of the Virgin of Guadalupe, both images were very famous in the 18th century as miracle makers. And yet the Virgin of Guadalupe, especially after 1754, we have, we really have an avalanche of images of her and it's very well known. There've been many exhibitions. We couldn't, as much as we try to edit down the number of uh, Guadalupes that we had in the exhibition, there's no escaping it. I think we have six or seven in different contexts. But for the Christ of Ixmiquilpan, for example, there are very few examples that we know of. So this also tells you something about how the custodians of these images had a say and who could copy the images and who couldn't. I mean, essentially, they, they played a role in how this, this, these images were promoted. There's a second one in the show, too, of course, of, uh, by an unknown artist that features the statue with, with lace curtains on either side of the painting and, yeah, on either side of the painting. And they're great. They're, they're completely great. I know I'm spending a lot of time in religious painting, so maybe this, this might be my last question about religious painting. A, a lot of the Mexican painters seem to embrace, if that's the right word, different religious stories than we see their Spanish counterparts or their other European counterparts for that matter embracing. So you have Francisco Antonio Vallejo painting the death of St. Francis Xavier, for example, or Miguel Geronimo Zendejas, uh, and I think somebody else in the show painting the discovery of St. John of Nepomuk. Yes. Neither of which are, are stories. I mean, you know, like, for example, I looked in the Prado's collection the other day, and they've only got one painting of St. Francis Xavier's death, you know, <laughs> and it's and it's a floral still life from the Netherlands, from, from what, what is now the Netherlands. So how and why did Mexican painters come to choose the, the churchly stories they, 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 they chose? Because they may not have been entirely rooted in. Yeah. Why did they choose the stories they chose? Well, I'm glad you mentioned St. John of Nepomuk because he's. A really interesting saint. He was actually a saint from Prague that somehow became really popular within the context of New Spain. This is also, it was also one of the figures that we could not escape. I think there are three or four images of the saint in the show. Saint John of Nepomuk was, he was a confessor of the Queen of Bohemia in, uh, in Prague. And when the Queen's extraordinarily jealous husband try to extract the secrets of confessional, the saint refused. So enraged, the king threw him over a bridge into the Moldova River, and his body was discovered uh, surrounded by five bright stars or flames that came down from the sky. It was uh, This is part of the legend of St. John of Nepomuk. Many years later, his body was exhumed, and it was, it was said that his tongue was still preserved alive, which was kind of, it's this famous relic. So some of the new Spanish paintings, like the one we have in the show by Costa de Paez, which was acquired by LACMA last year, has pretty frontal depiction of the saint with the tongue hanging from his priestly robes. The question is, why did the saint become so popular in New Spain? And one of our co-curators, Jaime Cuadriello, has done really wonderful research on that topic and he contends that the image, even though it was popular throughout the 18th century, became much more so after the expulsion of the Jesuits in, the, in 1768, because they, like St. Nepomuk, were ill-treated by a despotic king. King Charles III expelled them from the colony, and instead of reacting in a violent way, they just recall into their own intellectual pursuits, and uh, it became, the saint became highly venerated by the Jesuits and by people who esteemed the Jesuit order, which was a very large sector of colonial society. So after 1768, there seems to be an increasingly, there seems to be an increasing number of paintings, large and small, of this saint, who obviously also became this banner of discretion and moral rectitude. Let's, let's shift to landscape. 
there's quite a bit of landscape in in new Spanish painting. I'm thinking of paintings like Francisco Martinez's extraordinary education of the Virgin from 1722, in which kind of the Virgin is half the painting and landscape is the other half. Or Jose de Barra's Virgin of Guadalupe in view of the Valley of Mexico, which I think you referred to earlier, in which the bottom, I don't know, it's oval, so it's hard to do you know, maybe the bottom eighth of the painting is is a spectacular landscape. You know, comparatively, we, we, we see very little landscape in, say, Spanish painting of the period. How does it work its way into new Spanish and Mexican painting of the period and why? That's a really great question, Tyler, because there hasn't really been any kind of system, systematic study of landscape painting in New Spain of the 18th century. There's, it's uh, For a long time, the notion was that most painting was religious, so that artists really didn't focus so much on landscapes, or again, it's like also connected to the fact that they were not working with live models. But this is, and I hope the show, this is something that the show can do, which is really get people looking more and get them interested in topics like that one, because there hasn't really been a sort of a programmatic study of how the landscape becomes so prominent. And you're right. I mean, paintings like the oval work by Jose de Ibarra has this incredibly original and expansive landscape in the bottom, which... I don't think any of us have seen in other depictions of the Virgin of Guadalupe. So it speaks to an interest in this genre by many artists. And then you have some more explicit attempts to actually, and, and works that describe landscapes quite beautifully, especially, I'm thinking especially of Juan Patricio Morlete Ruiz, who was a contemporary of Miguel Cabrera. And he's an artist who has been largely over, largely overshadowed by Cabrera. Cabrera was the most famous of the two. But Morlete Ruiz, and I hope that the exhibition shows this, proves himself to be a really interesting artist, very methodic, very diverse in his interests and his abilities. He can go from very sophisticated religious paintings to do this sweeping suite of French landscapes after the uh, Vernet pictures in France to which he actually adds his own Mexican addenda. So he copies this suite of French paintings of the ports of France using a print as an intermediary. They're quite closely copied, but then almost to sort of like give us this very stark declaration, he adds two views of Mexico City of the Plaza Mayor and the Plaza del Volador, which were two main marketplaces and main hubs in Mexico City almost to declare that he's inscribing the entire French suite of landscapes into a new Spanish panorama of local geography and vice versa. Also, in that same room where we have some of Morleta's landscapes, we have some of his Casta paintings, which are very unusual because the background is filled with landscape elements. But this is a topic that hasn't really been addressed in a, very, in a, in a systematic or more serious way in, uh, in the literature. Well, you've been interested in it for a while because in 2007, you, you bought one of those Ruizes for LACMA, if I'm remembering right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I am, but I, but I also I realize it's, it's uh, something that interests me personally, but I also realize that there's so much more that can be done with this. The show includes an entire gallery of portraiture, to which we could devote a whole half hour. But one of the interesting things in that gallery is how it draws a relationship between portraiture and, and decorative art, mainly through uh, what are called nuns' badges. What are nuns' badges and how did they come to exist in both, you know, handheld-sized badges and, and also in portraits of, of, of humans, of nuns? They're quite wonderful. They're this fairly large ovals that nuns actually, they were painted by some of the best artists of the day, like Miguel Cabrera, Jose de Paez, Francisco Antonio Vallejo, that nuns were doing uh, special ceremonies, as, such as their profession ceremonies, and they kept throughout their lives. Uh, in the gallery devoted to portraiture, we have an interesting group of depictions of nuns prior to professing, and uh, after their profession, their professing ceremony, we have two works by, again, by Juan Patricio Morlete Ruiz, including one depiction of the daughter of Miguel Cabrera, where these are images of really of 16-year-old girls wearing very lavish and exquisite clothes, 
It's the last portrait of them shown as a civilian. So it's the last kind of image of them as part of the world, showing this ostentatious and lavish status symbols, including uh, fans, uh, this variety of uh, very intricate textures. Some of them are shown wearing their beauty marks, which were called chiquiadores on their temples. A lot of people ask about those. And uh, after they entered the convent and they professed, then they are shown with this very ostentatious crowns with flowers and wearing these non-badges or medallones de monja, which again were painted by the best artists of the day. What I find so fascinating is that the same painters that decorated their convents and the churches did not shy away from these smaller commissions, from creating this kind of uh, badge that really operated as, as a piece of jewelry in many ways. Switching gears probably a little too much here, but one of the innovations that I don't know if innovations is the right word, but one of the things that you uh, just won't see in European painting of the period, the way you see in new Spanish painting, is a very distinct use of text, almost as 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 we think of in like cartoons in the newspaper, you know, where the where the where the text is coming out of people's mouths as if it's something they're saying. How does that evolve, and what should we, how should we understand it in the context of of both the making of the paintings and how those how these paintings were received? Yeah, I think for many of our viewers, one of the most astonishing things when they walk through the show is the amount of text that they see in the paintings. Almost a very large percentage of the pictures have this kind of text and image thing going on. Obviously, sort of the use of text and images is not something that was invented in New Spain. It comes from uh, European medieval traditions. But for some reason, it became quite quite effective and used in the New Spanish context. It's one of the other topics that really requires more attention and requires people to study more in depth. I'm sure there's there's much more that we can say about that. But they, they were used, from what we can see, they were used in many ways, they were used uh, to sort of, there's the, the sort of the notion of the relationship relationship between image and text was key, especially if you take into account the audiences to whom these paintings could have been geared. So images that maybe the painters or their patrons were not sure how they were going to be received by the intended audience include texts to reinforce messages. So texts fulfills the role of reinforcing a message that you see being developed pictorially. What I find also kind of really extraordinary is that somebody as talented as Francisco Antonio Vallejo, for example, who was really one of the uh, most salient painters of the uh, 1750s and 60s, he, we have a letter that was preserved from him where he says, straight out that he just finds the rotulones, he calls them, the sort of the labels that go with the paintings, completely unnecessary. Because if you're a good painter, you should be able to sort of convey the message of the picture without having to resort to this kind of ancillary element. So that gives you a sense of how at least some of the artists were thinking about this inscriptions as a way of making the message more efficacious. At the same time, there are other paintings like Francisco Martinez's uh, allegorical picture of Christ pulling a soul through this kind of dangerous terrain, where you see all these inscriptions floating on the composition, which, yes, they do reinforce the message, they make the message really clear, but they also kind of fulfill a compositional role, which is probably the more interesting aspect of, uh, of this uh, profuse inscriptions. The use of the text also points to one suggests how the paintings live. You know, we'll have images of, of, of these uh, on manpodcast.com, I think. But this is, you know, especially where text is, you know, seemingly coming out of the mouths of, of figures in the painting. This, these are not enormous words. These are words that you really could only see if the painting was installed at eye level. And I guess that suggests how they were installed, used, intended... Yeah, I mean, in many ways, some of the inscriptions are speech scrolls. So it's, you have, it's almost like balloons, right? If you were thinking about cartoons it's in today's society, they're, they're, essentially, they're essentially speech scrolls. You have painters or their patrons have their figures speak and give very specific messages. 
But another aspect that's also, I mean, if you think of some of the Casta paintings, which I find, I find the relationship of image and text really complicated too, because you have this really, oftentimes this beautiful images of local, a collection of local clothing, assortments of products of land, beautiful textiles, etc. And you could almost think that the images are placid views of colonial society until you read the text, where they're labeling the different racial mixtures. And some of the racial mixtures are not, the names are not that great. I mean, if you're moving away from being white in the racial pole, you will be called a salta para atrás or salta atrás or torna atrás, which means return backwards, which means that you're receding in the racial scale. You're going away from a wider and more desirable pole. So there's this, this it's the, precisely, in my view, this tension between what is painted and what is stated through the inscription that creates images that are so strikingly complicated in a way you don't really know what to do at the end of the day. You're seeing these lush, beautiful images, and then you're reading this message that's really almost uh, opposing what you're seeing. So it's another level of uh, how the text can function in this type of paintings. I shouldn't have suggested the text was used in only one way in, 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 in the paintings. Uh, text is is used on on the leaves of books on kind of faux stone monuments i mean it's there's a lot of ingenuity in how how text exists in the paintings switching to the catalog and 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 wrapping up obviously a, a museum exhibition such as this one especially one that goes to three places can't show work that cannot travel, work that for one reason or another must remain in situ. The eight-pound catalog for the show, which is immediately the go-to source for (laughs) new Spanish painting of this period, is just a flat-out remarkable document, an example of how museums do more than hang things on walls it's it you know it it, it shows how museums are are research and, and conservation centers that do a lot more than blockbusters and the catalog is full of paintings that are not in the show and one of the things i'm looking forward to doing is going back to the show after i now that i've read the catalog are there a couple of works in the catalog that you think might be worth citing in that they might help us better understand things we see on the walls at LACMA or that we'll see on the walls at the Met next year? You're you're bringing up a really important issue, especially for the curatorial team, because we we traveled so much and we saw so many works. Uh, Many of them were just mural size, and that was uh, the subject of one of the catalog's articles, too, that some of the works are so grand and so big that it was, A, impossible to move them from their original context to bring into a show such as this. Uh, we would have not had space. Uh, we probably would have not been able to borrow them anyways because they are in places where they're still they're still part of the communities where they, 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 they're part of the life cults there. So we tried, as a curatorial team, we tried to pick some of the most significant works to illustrate in the introductory essay. And some of the most remarkable works that we all agreed were just wonderful and either reproduced for the very first time uh, as they should be in full color, double spread, are the works by Francisco Antonio Vallejo in the Templo del Carmen in San Luis Potosí. We'll have we'll have this two-page spread on the website one way or another. These were This was the two-page spread that just absolutely knocked me out. So sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Those pictures, uh, I think when we all saw those pictures, we were just amazed. Uh, and it's uh, the, the figure of the the servant bearing the cup and saucer that comes straight out of a work of a print by Chardin. It just really calls out how artists were so aware of what was happening in Europe and how they were reformulating the sources, how they were painting in this extraordinarily large scales, the amount of mural paintings that you can find in Mexico all across Mexico, all across the vice royalty, is really astounding. And that's something that, even in a book like this that weighs eight pounds and has 512 pages, it's impossible to convey. So hopefully what this source, this book does, is that it whets people's appetite so that they can pick different subjects or different areas of research and really plunge in deep and try to, to really get to the bottom of what these commissions were. 
Ilona Katsu, thanks so very much. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays at getty.edu 360. Experience Tom Sachs' Tea Ceremony, a new perspective on the traditional ceremony combining the artist's longtime interests, branding, Americana, space travel, and everyday manufactured materials. On view now at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 7th. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Detroit Institute of Arts curator Kenneth Myers. He has organized Church, a Painter's Pilgrimage, a show that looks at the paintings Frederick Edwin Church, made in the late 1860s and 1870s. They're pictures of his trip to the Middle East and the Mediterranean. The show is on view in Detroit until January 15th. The show's strong exhibition catalog was published by the DIA. Amazon offers it for $41. Kenneth Myers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. So in the 1840s and 50s, Frederick Church had made work in the American Northeast and in South America, and he's America's most famous and most financially successful painter. Yet when the Civil War ends, Church decides to go east, to the Far East. Why does he decide to leave America for a year and a half? Two reasons, I think. Two reasons that I can think of, maybe even three. Church goes east because it's possible that it's only after the end of the Crimean War in the later 1850s that the Ottomans who've been trying to keep Europeans out of the Levant, out of what we think of as the Middle East, lost control enough that European France and Germany and England start pushing their way in and you get the construction of the Suez Canal and you get business interests. So for the first time, there's regularly scheduled steamship service between Western Europe and Alexandria, Egypt and along the coast. And once the steamships go in, you get the beginnings of a tourist infrastructure. You get hotels opening up in Beirut and Jerusalem and Alexandria that Europeans are going to feel comfortable in. Roads start to get built. It's only in the five years before church gets there that for the first time you have a road that is wide enough and flat enough that you can take a stagecoach from the coast where Tel Aviv now is to Jerusalem or that you can take a stagecoach from Beirut to Damascus. So one reason to go is church as an artist um, had made his career out of painting visually interesting, spectacular places that were hard to get to and that most of his potential clients or people who would be interested in painting couldn't see for themselves. And all of a sudden, the Middle East has become that kind of place. Second, in his earlier travels, he was willing to really rough it uh, and be in some quite rugged places, whether that was going to South America or the interior of Maine or on a boat searching for icebergs in the North Atlantic. Uh, he gets married right at the beginning of the Civil War in 1860. He has a child. Actually, he has two children who died during the Civil War of diphtheria, but by 1867, he has an 18-month-old. And so he knows that he doesn't want to leave the family, and he wants to travel with the family. And that makes it hard for him to think about going back to South America or the American West, because those are not areas that's going to be comfortable traveling with family. And the tourist infrastructure has developed enough by the later 1860s that church can take his family, as he indeed does. He goes with his wife. He goes with his child. He goes with his mother-in-law. He goes with a nurse. During the 19 months that Daisy's away, his wife gets pregnant and gives birth to another child, and they hire another nurse. So he's traveling with an entourage. And then a third reason is Church and his wife are devout Christians, Protestants, uh, and what, uh, what today would be the United Church of Christ, what he thought of as Congregationalist churches. And he, I think, is going not just on a working vacation to, to find subjects to paint, but he's also going as a religious pilgrimage who wants to walk in the footsteps of his God. How important was it for him to have new subjects 
in his work, but both just in terms of kind of, you know, personal creativity and enrichment kind of reasons, but also in terms of his market? Very. I think Church is a traditional painter and one of the a mainstream painter. And one aspect of that, I think for Church, as for much of his audience, the primary definition of originality was was originality of subject and that he had made his career in terms of painting interesting places that were hard to get to and that there wasn't a lot of visual record of. So, for example, although he's in his last major stop is Rome and he's living in Rome from October of 1868 until May of 1869, he doesn't paint Rome. He's not interested in painting Rome because it's been painted by major painters for 200 years. He wants to paint subjects that haven't been painted. So before we get into some of the paintings and, and, and what Church says with them, if you will, could you give us a quick rundown of, of where he goes and how you think he, he picked those particular destinations other than, than of course, the new travel routes you, you outlined a moment ago? We know from letters, several letters that he's written, that the sites that he's most interested in painting are the, the pyramids and the Sphinx at Giza, Jerusalem, Damascus, Baalbek, Palmyra and Athens. He gets to four out of those six sites. He doesn't get to the pyramids and he doesn't get to Palmyra. This evidence is circumstantial, but in the winter of 1867, Church's painting Niagara is on exhibit in the Exposition Universelle in Paris. And I think he must have intended to get to Paris in time to see uh, the show and he wins the silver medal. And in fact, he arrives a month late after the show is closed. And I think they're a month behind the whole trip. So even though the boat takes him to Alexandria uh, and he had hoped to go up the Nile, he doesn't. He goes directly from from Alexandria, takes his family up to Beirut, where he rents hotel rooms and where he creates a safe place for his wife to be. As it happens, there are a bunch of New Yorkers in Beirut who were involved in the founding of a missionary college, the predecessor for what's now the American University in Beirut. So there are good friends of the churches who are in Beirut, and they're based in Beirut from January of 1868 until May of 1868. They spend the summer of 1868 in the Alps, and then in the fall of 1868, they come down to Rome, and they're in Rome is their base camp from October of 1868 until the spring of 1869. He needs he needs places where there are friends, where there are comfortable accommodations, because while he stays with his wife and child for much of the time, he does go off on more rigorous trips that he can't take her on, the most important of which is a trip to Petra that he takes very shortly after he arrives in Beirut. The show is built around a series of, of self-consciously major paintings the church makes over the course of nine years, starting in 1869. What is his his working method? Is he making these major paintings in the Far East, or does he wait to ta- to tackle the big canvases until he gets home? Good question, and and I'll switch it around a little bit. There's been a major church retrospective that looked at all the major paintings from the beginning of his career to the end. There's been several shows that focused on these beautiful plein air oil studies the church did when he was visiting sites and which he did not think of as finished paintings and which he rarely exhibited or or sold. And there's actually been one exhibition that just focused on Church's incredibly gorgeous graphite drawings. In fact, we have a moving letter from his teacher, Thomas Cole, written about a year after Church has started studying with Cole when Church is 19 years old, where Cole acknowledges that Church is a better draftsman than he is and that says that I've never seen drawings as beautiful as Church's drawings, which are true. They're crisp, they're detailed, they're incredibly evocative. So from the beginning, I wanted to focus on this little, this least understood final major phase in Church's career, but I wanted to look not just at the major paintings that came out of the trip, but look at those paintings in the context of these smaller, less well-known works that he conceptualized as preliminary works aids to memory, which he created on site and used back in the studio, but which many of us find very moving and beautiful. So he makes most of the large-scale paintings in New York then? He is paying his way as he goes. 
So while he's in Beirut, in addition to taking three major trips, one without his wife to Petra, which takes about six weeks to get from Beirut to Petra, which is below the Dead Sea, east of the Dead Sea and what is now Jordan. And then he comes back and picks up his wife and they take a trip to Jerusalem and they're in Jerusalem for about two weeks. And then later on, he takes his wife and they take the stagecoach to Damascus and stop in Baalbek for a week on the way back to Beirut. In addition to doing all that travel, he's also painting, and he completes three paintings while he's in Beirut, one of which is of a Middle Eastern scene, two of which are of South American scenes. He paints a few paintings while he's in the Alps, the most important of which we decided not to include in the show. And there is no major painting of the Alps. But then while he's in Rome, he actually completes a gorgeous, his first mate two mid-sized paintings and his first major painting on a Middle Eastern subject of distant view of Damascus, the same size as his now famous distant view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's the first major fruit of the trip. He completes it in Rome. He sends it to London to go on exhibit. Uh, On his way back from Rome to New York, he and his family stop in London and they see the painting. Uh, They arrange for it to be shipped to New York and it's the first major fruit of his travels to be shown in New York. We have 30 or 40 exhibition descriptions of it, so we have a quite good sense of what it looked like. We have some pencil drawings that show us what we think it looked like. Unfortunately, it was it was a commissioned painting. It went from the New York Gallery to the painting gallery of the man who commissioned it, and it was destroyed when his house burnt down in 1884. All the other major paintings were painted after Church got back to the United States. There is a good-sized but not enormous Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives in the show. It's the it's the major painting. It's the second major painting he, he paints. There's seven major art objects that come out of the trip. The first one is Damascus in 1869. The second is Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is now in the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. He knows that his audience is going to be more interested in Jerusalem than anything else. It's a painting commissioned by someone from Hartford that he probably had family connections with. And we know he finishes it by the fall of 1870 and sends it to Hartford with an understanding that he's going to bring it back to New York and show it in New York in March. And pretty clearly what he's doing is holding it off until the beginning of the Easter season, expecting, as indeed turns out to be the case, that in addition to being reviewed as a major painting by church, it will also be talked up by ministers and the religious press as an occasion for for Americans to have a realistic representation of the Holy Land. It's marketed as, uh, in the religious press especially, as sort of you may not be able to go to Jerusalem during your life to make that pilgrimage, but you can go to Goupil's gallery and see Mr. Whistler's painting, and it's the next best thing to being there. You mentioned the oil sketches and the pencil sketches that Church made. Could you kind of walk us through maybe an, a, a favorite example of how pencil and oil sketches led to one of the major paintings? Yeah, the Jerusalem would be a good one. And, and in the show, we've done a really good job in installing it. So we have the major painting, which is eight or nine feet in width, in the, cent- in the center of the wall. And to its right, we have two oil studies that Church did on site uh, when he was there in the spring of 1868. In fact, we know that while he and his wife were staying at a hotel in the city, they did something that many tourists did while they were in Jerusalem. The hotel arranged, made arrangements so that they could camp out on the Mount of Olives so that they could watch the sunset over the old city. And that church spent that day and went back to the Mount of Olives on other occasions to do drawings from the Mount of Olives. And in this version of the show, we have two oil studies that he did there. When the show goes to North Carolina, they will have, to the Ronaldo House Museum of Art, they will have a pencil sketch that he did at the same time. One of the oil studies is essentially a study of, it's broadly painted, it's focusing on color arrangements. The pencil drawing and the other oil study is focusing on a dramatic sunset that he saw. Then on the other side of the big painting, we have an oil study that we know he did back in New York, which is drawing on his memory of the site, the pencil drawings and the oil studies that he brought back with him, photographs that he brought back with him, prints in books on Jerusalem that he had access to, and also we think a sunset that he had painted on another occasion in 1866 when he was in Jamaica. And it's a model for the finished painting. 
And in fact, the finished painting we now realize is sort of the Caribbean over Jerusalem with this fabulous Churchian sunset. And he also further develops the painting by more fully working out a narrative of darkness to light. All the major paintings by Church have an implied movement either from light to dark or from light to dark to light, which seems to me to always stand for a movement from sin to redemption or from despair to revelation. In the Church, in the painting of Jerusalem and our painting, Syria by the Sea, this movement uh, from light through darkness back to light is are especially clear. And you don't get those in the preliminary studies. You see him working that out in in the in the in the studio study and then further working it out directly on the canvas of the big painting. In Church's paintings of the American landscape, so before he takes this trip, he regularly embeds ideas or references to national events within his paintings of the American landscape, such as Niagara in eighteen fifty seven or 1862's Too Little Remembered, probably because it's lost, uh, under Niagara. Does he embed ideas or, th- or, or commentaries, that's a bad word, to either the American present in any of his paintings of the Far East, or are his kind of ideas and thoughts all in, entirely within the geography he's inhabiting? The other major church painting at the DIA um, is a painting called Cotopaxi, which he paints right at the beginning of the Civil War. And it's always intrigued me that uh, in the late 1960s, it was pointed out that this volcano erupting and uh, and the lake next to it that seems almost like it's uh, filled with blood um, was first shown to the public in the spring of 1862. And it's hard to read that cataclysm in the painting is not referencing the cataclysm of the beginning of the Civil War. I think that's true, but I'm also struck by the fact that of the 60 or 70 or 80 exhibition reviews that we have of that painting, none of them made any connections to the Civil War. And Church's intention in the painting, I think, primarily dealt with his understanding of cycles of geological and geological time. These paintings of the Middle East, I think, are very much post-Civil War paintings. I think if you look at the major paintings, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, what we know of the Damascus painting, the painting of the Parthenon, Syria by the Sea, painting called the Aegean Sea, which was too fragile to travel, that's at the Metropolitan. The foregrounds are filled with architectural ruins in a way that I think for a contemporary audience must have recalled the Civil War photographs of Fredericksburg or Richmond after after their destruction. So I think the paintings had a resonance. I think Church is offering reassurance in these paintings, both to himself and his audience, that death and destruction, whether it's of the recent American Civil War or whether it's the history of the rise and fall of different civilizations from ancient Greece and through the destruction of the temples, through the Crusades up to the present, that there is a God who's working out some progressive, meaningful purpose despite all the all the horrors of human history. You mentioned earlier Church's evangelical Christianity and how important it was to him. Do we see him specifically referencing that or furthering it? I'm not sure that's the right word. In any of of these paintings, is there kind of a, again, a phrase I'm going to regret as soon as I say it, a, a visual Christianizing of the Far East that we should note here? Actually, I think it's an interesting question, too. I think less explicitly than some of the earlier paintings. Heart of the Andes has a little church sanctuary in it. Some of the paintings in South America have have in the lower left corner, the lower right corner, uh, little shrines. Cotopaxi that I referenced before, um, when you look at the light that's shining onto the lake, the shape of the light forms a cross. I think it's implicit in the paintings that come out of this trip, but I don't think it's explicit in that kind of way. But I don't think his audience would have missed it. In fact, by the time Church was, as you said in the intro, from the mid-1850s until the early 1870s, until shortly after he gets back from this trip, the most popular, the most talked about, most financially successful artist in America, by the early 1870s, the reviewers 
a 70, 80 percent of the reviewers still think he walks on water, but there's a progressive 10 or 20 or 15, 10 or 20 percent of the reviewers who say, well, it's another one of Mr. Church's grand sunsets that are filled with the presence of God. You know, he, he can paint brilliant sunsets, but why does he paint the same kind of sunset in every one of his big paintings? And that's starting to happen by the early 1870s. Kenneth Myers, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Come see the show. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.